So let's just uh, offer up, instead of me always doing it, uh, Daryl, are you on the mic? Yeah, here I am. All right, you pray for the evening, please. We're going to share it around from now on. Yeah, no worries. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word. We're so thankful, Lord, that you've allowed us to have fellowship through the week. And, uh, Lord, we just pray that you would speak to our hearts tonight. Lord, that you'd open the word up uh, to each one of us individually where we're at in our walk and relationship with you, just to minister, to bring strength, comfort, joy, whatever it may be that's needed tonight, Lord. And we just pray for Stu that, Lord, you'd uh, give him clarity and uh, strength to present to us and, and bring the, the word to us tonight. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. We, we're, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, but I'm only going to do verses 1 to 8 tonight because um, there's so much in this. I'm hoping we'll even get through that much tonight because there's so much background. Um, and one of the things that uh, Paul, Paul spends the whole first four chapters in the letter for the Corinthians to try and sort out their immaturity, to try and sort out their what he calls carnality and their factionalism and their divisions within the church. And um, if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 26, he, he he um, makes the comment, in fact, I'll turn back to it quickly now. He makes the point in 1 Corinthians 1.26, um, he explains or exposes the divisions within the congregation. For, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, so that assumes that there were some intellectuals there, uh, according to the flesh, not many mighty, so possibly um, officials, Roman officials or city officials, not many noble, that is of the patrician class, uh, called. And the rest of the church um, cons uh, consisted of a large number of slaves. So within that fracturing of the, um, of the congregation into um, uh, positions or levels within society, you can see already that they were possibly open to this uh, divisions and, 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 uh, and uh, factions. Um, and to, so to start um, the chapter four tonight, I want to really go back three verses and, and start again at 1 Corinthians 3, 21, 22 and 23. And I'll just read them out. Um, because the guys uh, on Bible Show haven't got these because uh, I didn't let them because <laughs> I was just perusing it before. So in, in verse 21 of chapter 3, he said, Paul is saying to the congregation, Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things that yours are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. He's trying to break apart this, this desire for them to have groups and elevated teachers and problems with vanity and problems with superiority. And he says, everyone belongs to you guys. And that is Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come and all are yours and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And so verse one is following on from that. And Paul is saying, therefore, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And in that one verse, he's got um, um, two descriptions 
of um, people within the church, both servants and stewards. And um, in Roman society, back in those days, servants were um, charged with the running of the household. And that's every menial task right up to administration and um, uh, looking even to the looking after the children of the owners of the household. And we as um, um, children of God are referred to in the scriptures as being in the household of God. And so Paul is using these, these um, descriptions to make people aware that we are equal members in the household of God. And one of the things that Paul really pushes through in these first four chapters is there is no one elevated above, above, above another in the, in the body of Christ. And it's so important to realize that. And the problem is that in our own carnality, and all of us are, um, are guilty of this to some degree, is that we, we, by default, elevate people within the church who have a certain office um, and, and uh, sort of lift them up. And poor, uh, Jesus himself hates that because, as I've said before in this study, in um, Revelation 2 and 3, he, he talks at the, to the Smyrna church and to the Philadelphian church about a group called the Nicolaitans who were people who were um, calling themselves clergy and laity and ruling it over the rest of the congregation. And Jesus himself says he hates that kind of um, division because everyone under Christ and under God is equal. We'd have different roles to play in the church, but everyone should consider themselves as important as everyone else. And servants, um, even Paul, um, and frequently in, in starting off his letters, calls himself a bond servant, which is a servant dedicated to that particular household. And, and there he means the household of God. But he's also mentioning here stewards. And a steward is a senior servant generally in control of the household and all of the rest of the, um, of the, of the servants. And he's still a slave servant, and he still owns nothing. But he is put in charge of the master's household, both the people in it, the slaves, and all of the physical assets. And, you know, when years and years ago, when um, I was looking at the different meanings of the different names of the people in, uh, in the Bible, uh, I, I turned the, the, the scrutiny on myself. And my name is Stuart, uh, which is actually Gaelic, uh, and it's a translation of the word or the term Stuart. And when I looked up the meaning of my name in Gaelic, it actually means keeper of the master's estate while he is away. And I thought that was really quite, uh, quite amazing. Um, that and that's really what all of us are involved in on an equal level because as born again believers in jesus christ we are charged by jesus with the responsibility to look after and care for and promote uh, the things that he left with us that are contained within the church and uh, it, it's it's absolutely fascinating that um that we that, that I found that I had this name. And so I looked back over 
um, some of the uh, examples of stewardship in the Bible. And just to hurry it along, the two that I thought of was Joseph and Daniel. If you remember, Joseph became the prime minister of Egypt under Pharaoh and was in charge of all of the day-to-day um, -day running of the, of the empire. And the same thing appears to have been with Daniel under Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian um, uh, situation. And so they were faithful, um, competent administrators of the household, the first one of Pharaoh and the second one of the household of Nebuchadnezzar. So we had these um, examples in the Old Testament, but Paul is calling us um, to realize that we are both servants and stewards of the household of God. And uh, just as a modern uh, example of that, I did, just throwing this in, is completely non-biblical. But how many of you remember the series Downton Abbey? Yeah, loved it. Well, Mr. Carson was the steward of that household. And when Lord Downton was away, remember in the early series, he was away in, in, uh, in the army and, and away from the house while well, Mr. Carson was responsible as the steward for running the household. So that gives you an idea of what stewardship is really all about. And in verse 1, Paul is describing himself uh, and, and Apollos as stewards. And why are they called stewards in the first place? And that's because before they got the opportunity to preach to the Corinthian church or the Philippian church or the Thessalonian church or the Ephesian church, Paul, for a start, was given the knowledge of the mysteries of God um, that he would then be charged by Jesus with the responsibility of teaching these new doctrines to the churches that he established in his um, uh, ministries. And uh, mis mysteries, uh, and, and all of you should be aware, if you're not, the mystery or mysterion in the Greek are divine truths known from eternity past that God's known all the time, but he has progressively released them over the, the history of mankind so that we get more and more and more revelation as to what's been happening um, with humankind and with our relationship with God as he's released these um, mysteries and these truths to be known to us. And uh, in, in, in verse 1 that Paul's got, so let a man can so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And in verse 1 and 2, this is the, the uh, statement of position, which is servant and steward. And it's also a um, description of um, the treasures that have been given firstly to Paul and the, one, and the things that they, that they spread out. And uh, we're going to look, uh, I don't know if you got them early enough. From now on, I'm going to, by email, I send it to John. I don't know if he's had a chance to send it to any of you. But if you've given John your emails, you'll be getting these notes um, um, before each Bible study each week so that you can follow through with them. But the mysteries of God, I'm just going to go through them relatively quickly. Uh, but these are the things that we've been charged with so that we can pass them on 
to others within Calvary Chapel, Perth, the others in our families, the people we're witnessing to, the people, you know, hopefully that we're, we're preaching the gospel to. And so I want you to turn, if you can, please, to Matthew 13, verses 10 and 12 in your Bibles. And this is really the first instance of, of the revelation of mysteries in the New Testament. And, and it's wonderful that it comes from Jesus himself. And not only that, but the very last two mysteries also come from Jesus. And we look at those later in Revelation. But in Matthew 13, verses 10 to 12, we have, and he's saying to the disciples, and this comes in Matthew 12 after, uh, after Matthew 12, where the national leadership of Israel have rejected finally Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. So Jesus then totally changes the format of his ministry and he concentrates now on for the rest of the time up until the, the Passion Week in training up these disciples to be the pillars and foundation of the church, which is to come, which, which, which is to be revealed as a mystery. And in verse, chapter, uh, verse 10, Jesus is saying to these disciples, and the disciples came to him, sorry, this is just the lead up to it, and the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them, that is the general people, in parables? And Jesus answers and says, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he does have will be taken away from him. And in verse 12, it is whoever has that is faith to believe, more will be given to him and he will be able to cope with it and he'll have an abundance of knowledge about these mysteries. But whoever does not have, and that is does not have faith or an understanding or a comprehension of the kingdom, even what he does have will be taken away from them. And, and he's talking to Jewish uh, people in the first century. And so when the vast majority of the Jewish people have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, then what they even understand about the Messiah will be taken from them because he is the Messiah and they've rejected him. And so um, faith brings abundance and um, unbelief just brings devastation and desolation. And so these, uh, I'm going to quickly run down in, in, the, in the rest of the chapter, the Two passages in the Bible where we have a prophetic outline of the church age, that's from now until Jesus comes again, or the, sorry, the rapture, is the um, passage here in Matthew 13 and in Revelation 2 and 3 where Jesus again gives to John a prophetic outline of the, the history of the church from Ephesus all the way through to Laodicea. But in, these, uh, in this particular chapter, uh, he deals with aspects of, of the, the mysteries of the kingdom. And I think these are valuable to uh, visit and to learn again. The first one in, in Matthew 13 is the parable of the four soils. And this relates to the receipt, receipt of the gospel. And the second one after that is wheat and tears. And uh, the, the warning here is um, uh, that... Both will grow up at the same time. Tears 
as they're growing up. This is the plant called um, Darnel in Egypt. And when it sprouts out of the ground and grows before it reaches maturity, it actually looks a lot like wheat. And uh, it's only when it finally um, um, buds and you see this horrible black thing on the top of the plant, you know that it's not wheat, but that's at the very end of its uh, growth um, um, process. And so Jesus is saying here that in the, the church period, there will be people who uh, are genuine believers, they're the wheat, but there will be pretenders who come into the church and they look like wheat and they sound like wheat and all the rest of it. But when um, judgment comes, they'll be found to be false believers and they'll be found to be tears. And when we get back to um, uh, Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 5, he actually repeats this um, warning that he gives to these disciples that do not judge during this age, do not try and go and weed out the tears from the wheat because in doing so, you might make a crass mistake and damage the faith of young believers. And so there's a serious warning about the wheat and the tears. And then we have the mustard parable of the mustard seed, which relates to the fact that the church starts off small. In fact, it starts off with these guys here. And then on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they add 3,000 to the, to the church on that one day, and then later on they add, add another 5,000. So it grows from a small entity. But Jesus is warning that the, the um, church as an organism or as, as an organization will grow into some um, monstrous, uh, gigantic organization worldwide that has left the basic principles of Christianity that he left with the disciples and they passed them on to the first believers. And then Jesus himself passed them on to Paul after his um, conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And so we have, for instance, I'm not going to name names in case uh, you know there are people on, online who would get offended by this, but there are... There are several global organizations who call themselves churches that have completely departed from biblical Christianity, and this is what he's talking about. The, the next uh, um, parable is the parable of the leaven, that is that uh, in the actual, even the real church, they will come into the church um, um, false doctrine, um, false teaching, and he, he warns you to be aware of that. And that uh, false doctrine and false teaching, uh, he relates to as leaven. And you know what leaven is? Um, you all know what leaven is. It's actually yeast. And when you put it into the lump, it puffs up. And so these people, these false teachers uh, that come into the church are motivated by vanity and by pride. And it's fascinating that Jesus is warning of this because this is what Paul is dealing with in the Corinthian church for the first four chapters, that there is pride and vanity within the factions in the church. And this is given to us as, as a, um, uh, a warning and uh, an encouragement and an exhortation to always examine both um, the, the fellowship that we belong to and also examine our own hearts as, as to how we're going um, in our walk with the, with the, with the Lord and in our walk with one another. And uh, I have to tell you that there was um, 
a lady who came to the church on uh, Sunday for the first time, and she's been following us for quite some time uh, online, and she decided to come and, and give us a, uh, a tryout on Sunday. And afterwards, she walked up to me as I was leaving the front of the stage and everyone was going down to the cafe, and she said, Stuart, she said, the moment I walked into this room, there was such a beautiful sense of peace and love and fellowship uh, in this room. And she said, it's lasted all the way through. She said, I'm just amazed. And for me, that is a, a such a um, wonderful thing to say because it pertained to everyone in the church that went up and welcomed her and made her feel like part of the congregation. And then it, it even got more in the cafe when she was talking to people in the cafe. And so there's a wonderful sense of unity. We're very fortunate to have it in C CCP. And of course, in other, in other um, um, fellowships. But this makes me, and it should make the leadership of the church, very wary of, of um, the danger of factionalism and, and uh, the problems that come with, um, you know, uh, people arguing over doctrine and all the rest of it. So that's the leaven that Jesus warns us about. But I was just so thrilled about uh, that, that particular lady. And the interesting thing she says is that she and her husband had been watching us, but they were hurt very, very badly um, a number of years ago by the fellowship they were uh, in. And so they stayed out and they've just been searching for churches in the meantime. And so they found CCP and, and the lady has come along and she's so happy with it. And the husband said, no, the husband was really hurt by this previous church. And he said, no, I'll just wait a little longer. So, um, you know, we may have him and there are others coming as well. So that's something that I'm very, very conscious of. And I'm very thankful for in this church because, um, we know that one of our, our members um, by the name of Chris was feeling very unwell on, on uh, Sunday and he couldn't come down to the cafe and he sat in his little um, uh, uh, push chair. And one of our, the ladies in our um, um, fellowship saw that he was so breathless that she actually pushed him out of the room and down the path and helped him into his vehicle. And um, we, we spoke to uh, Chris yesterday on the phone at length about his health and, and how he's going. And he said that loving act uh, by that lady well, brought him nearly to tears as he was driving home. And uh, if that wasn't enough, um, he was moved to tears when he saw um, the, the gentleman that we bring uh, to the uh, church who has um, a visual disability and he saw him sitting on his own. But what, what uh, this guy does is he listens to everything that's going on and he's quite happy because he's got a different perception of, of what's happening. And Chris, in his unhealth, felt compassion towards this guy because he didn't like him being alone. So, you know what, a, a fellowship is an organism. Do you know what I mean? And, and to me... What Sunday showed me is that we're all relating to one another and there is love and fellowship in that, um, in that church. So um, it, it, as a pastor, 
That's what you're really looking for. And that's what uh, Paul is emphasizing here, that there is no one person above, above another. And you'll notice uh, in the cafe, if I'm wearing my name badge, it's only got Stuart on it. It hasn't got Pastor Stuart because I, I just really am not comfortable with this giving people titles uh, uh, that automatically, um, in some people's uh, concept, elevates one person above the other. And that is exactly not what happens in the Christian church. All of us have abilities. All of us have gifts. All of us have um, things to offer other people. And I can see that really flourishing in CCP. So this is why these studies are so important because it encourages us to do the things that we're doing well. And uh, that just really um, thrilled me. And, and in Matthew 13, Jesus once again repeats the wheat and the tears and he's really hammering home to the disciples not to go rush out judging people and, and, and tossing people out because they disagree with the disciples and all the rest of it. Because as one of my uh, the guys that I listen to uh, uh, every now and again is David Hockey, and he he said, as I said on Sunday, uh, you'll never agree a hundred percent with every Christian on every issue, but what we do do it and we major in is the areas where we do agree, which is five pillars of the faith, which is the uh, inerrancy of scriptures in their original languages the uh, virgin birth, the sinless life and atoning death of Jesus Christ, the burial and the resurrection, and his soon return. And if you agree on all of those things, then, um, you know, put the other things to side and at least have an amicable discussion. Don't let it lead to divisions and factionalism. And then hidden treasure, well, that's um, the mystery of Israel and the Jews that come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then we have the pearl of great price, which is um, supposed to be technically Gentiles coming into this organization called the church. And then we have a fascinating um, little uh, passage called the householder. And I'm going to address that next week, but it's absolutely fascinating. And it applies to us. And we are the householders. We are within the household of God. And I'll look at that later on. It would be good if you just study that little passage about the household, because it's brilliant. Now, the second mystery that I want to address, and only in, in uh, just in headlines from now on, but in Romans 11.25, we have the mystery of Israel's partial blindness. And in Romans 25, I'll read it out to you. Um, uh, Eric's got it up there on the screen. Uh, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, and some translations have conceit, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And what uh, Paul is saying there is that while blindness has been applied judicially to the nation of Israel, because it's partial, that over the period of the church, there will be Jewish people who come into the church through faith in Jesus. And I was fascinated uh, a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, listening to one of the Mir Sephardi's uh, broadcasts from Israel. And uh, in, in passing, he mentioned that less than half a percent 
of the Jewish people in Israel are believers at this time. So, you know, if there's uh, 7 million Jews there, so you're talking 70,000 believers um, uh, in Israel, Jewish believers, and this is what this partial hardening is. The third mystery is uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 52. And Paul is saying, um, this is the mystery of the rapture of the church. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 52, we have, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And he repeats that in 1 Thessalonians verse 4, uh, chapter 4, 13 to uh, 18. So that's the, um, the third mystery. The fourth mystery uh, is in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, which is the mystery of Jews and Gentiles together in the church. And in verse 4, we have, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it now has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the, the grace of God given to me by the effecting work, effective working of his power. So this is the first um, revelation of the mystery that... Uh, that Gentiles will be made partakers with Jewish believers in this uh, organization called the Church, the Ecclesia, the called out ones. And we have um, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, so turn over two chapters um, to the right, and we have in verses 28 to 32, the mystery of marriage. Uh, and... Um, those of us who have been married for decades, this is of particular interest to us. Um, but uh, we have in, in 5, 28 to 32, Paul saying to the Ephesian church, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two, this is the, the, the main emphasis here, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ in the church, because Christ is the head, we are the body, we are, we are absolutely joined together as one body, one flesh. And this is the mystery of the marriage of uh, Christ to his church. And one chapter over, um, chapter 6, verse 19, and this uh, is the mystery of the gospel. And in uh, uh, Ephesians six nineteen. We have, as for me, the utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. And when you look for an explanation in that passage from Paul about what the mystery of the gospel is, 
it's not there, but it can be found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. And Colossians 3, verses 9 to 11. And in Colossians 3, 9 to 11, Paul says, verse 9, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him, whether where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So the gospel in the New Testament goes out to everyone in the world. There is no exclusion um, from the openness to the gospel in every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. And that is that mystery of the gospel. And we carry on uh, and keep going. So we have in Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we have the mystery of Christ indwelling in us. And in Colossians 1, 26 and 27, uh, we have in verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I hope you check your emails um, later on because all of these have been sent to you and it's, it's worth, of a, worth a study because these are, the, these are the things that you share with people that you are um, witnessing to. It's not the first thing that you would give them. You give them the gospel and if they respond, but in, you, uh, in your relationship as it develops, you then, you know, add to these things. And if they're reading scriptures and they don't understand, these would be a lot of the things that they would bring up with you. So it's just background for you to help with your um, witnessing and sharing with people. And so the, the Christ in dwelling, but to explain um, this indwelling uh, uh, perspective, I went to John chapter 14, verse 23. And if you look at John chapter 14, verse 23, we have this. We have, and Jesus answered and said to them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home or abode with him. And if you dwell on that for a little while, that's just absolutely astonishing. And uh, as I said at a, in a Sunday message several weeks ago, you know, we are like a crowded house. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We have Christ. We have the Father. We have um, the new man that's part of us. And unfortunately, we, uh, we still have the, the old man or the old flesh still there. And the, other, the, um, the next mystery is the mystery of faith, which is in 1 Timothy uh, 3.9. Oh, sorry. No, I missed one out. This is uh, the mystery of lawlessness, which is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. And we should all be aware of this if we're prophecy buffs. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 7, we have, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. 
And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, we were sort of, lawlessness was sort of around as far as criminality is concerned. But what we're seeing on the streets of um, cities in the US and in Europe and uh, Britain, you know, this, this spirit of lawlessness has really exploded and taken off. Um, and so the next one that I've got is the mystery of faith, uh, which is 1 Timothy 3 verse 9. And it's up there on the screen. And it is um, holding to the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. And in order to, uh, to explain the mystery of the faith, I've turned to Jude verse 3, which is up there on the screen. And Jude, uh, we recently did this book, um, and in verse 3, Jude is writing to believers, saying, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to, to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And the faith that Jude is um, referring to is all the doctrine and teaching that they had received up until now through the Gospels and through Paul's letters and through Peter's letters because they're already in existence by the time that uh, Jude is, uh, is writing. So the faith that Paul, uh, sorry, that Jude is relating to is all of the doctrinal um, um, uh, information that, we've, that they had been given up until then. And we now have that our faith is encapsulated in our Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And that's what we stick with. And we do not go outside the scriptures to, read, to look for any more revelation or any more knowledge because everything that we could possibly need is contained within those 66 books. It was written by the Holy Spirit using the pens of men and it's all we need in order to understand and to share our faith. And please don't ever go outside um, um, the, the boundaries of Scripture. And in 1 Timothy, uh, sorry, the next one I have is um, the mystery of godliness. And that is uh, in 1 Timothy 3.16. And uh, it is apparently uh, a part of an early church hymn that uh, must have uh, come out of uh, the very early church founded by the disciples. Uh, and there are standards and couplets within this. But in 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul uh, writes to Timothy, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And that God was manifest, manifested in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. It was seen by the angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world and received up in glory. And all of those things relate to the fact that Jesus was uh, God manifested in the flesh. Remember when he was justified by the spirit, when um, an example is when John the Baptist in John chapter one was told by God from heaven, the father from heaven, that whom you see the Spirit descend upon, he is the one, he is the Christ. And so John saw that visually, the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove and alighting on Jesus' shoulder. And so that was that um, um, identification, justification in the Spirit, seen by angels, 
there were angels um, all the way through his uh, ministry watching from heaven um, because when he was going to uh, the trials and to the, um, the brutal punishment by both the Jews and the, and the Romans, um, he said to his disciples, do you not know that I can call down a legion of angels of my father and get me out of this fixture? But that was the plan of God for, for all of us, that Jesus go through that trial, that we might be set free from um, the penalty of sin. So he was manifested in the flesh, justified by the spirit, seen by the angels, preached among the Gentiles by the first believing Jews, and then from that, as the church grew worldwide, believed on in the world. And that's the difference between believers and non-believers, that there are people who respond to the gospel and people who don't respond to the gospel. And um, how great is the pity. And the fraction there is, I think, Jesus gives us a hint uh, in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, straight is the way and narrow is the gate that leads to life. And wide is the path, or broad is the path, and wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many find it, but few find the narrow path and the narrow gate that leads to, uh, to light. And that's always really concerned me, because Jesus is saying straight, straight there in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, that few will find him as their Lord and Saviour, uh, and many will reject him. And uh, boy... If you dwell on that, uh, you know, all of us have got family, friends, um, nieces, nephews, cousins, aunts, uncles, all the rest of it, who just seem to have this stubborn resistance to, uh, to the uh, gospel. And it just makes me more in awe of the grace that I've received from God, that, um, you know, at the due time, I received the gospel of Jesus Christ and I was born again. And uh, I don't think any of us here should ever leave the amazement that we should always have in the background that God, through his grace, his mercy, his love, um, brought us into his family and into the kingdom of God. It's still a, a, what an amazing thing. And um, we've got... Uh, among the Gentiles. Now, the last two mysteries that we have in the scripture is Revelation 1.20, and that's in uh, uh, the first chapter of uh, the Revelation. It's given by Jesus to John, and it's the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are which you saw the seven churches. And the final mystery that we're getting on to is in Revelation 17, 5. And in, uh, it's the mystery Babylon. And in verse 5 of Revelation chapter 17, we have, And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And uh, that is uh, all of the mysteries that we have been given and most of them were given to Paul. Paul um, wasn't around by the time Revelation was written, but I'm sure that he was aware of it. Um, and so we carry on now um, and, and look at uh, a couple of the, the uh, 
relevant passages that we're looking at now in uh, can you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and uh, we have here in, in uh, chapter 4 3 4 and 5 uh, is sorry yeah chapter 4 and 3 4 and 5 um, are, are a, a, a connected set of verses that once Paul has said, we are servants and stewards within the church and we are no more than you are, he then uses verses 3, 4, and 5 to attach to you and I our accountability. And in that accountability, he says this, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or even by a human court in fact, I do not even judge myself. And a lot of the commentators um, have the fact that a lot of people, when they first read that um, verse by Paul, um, it would seem to be arrogance. But it's not arrogance because Paul, by this time, has such a close relationship with Jesus Christ that he knows that whatever he thinks of himself is irrelevant. It's what Jesus thinks of him that's the important thing and that is carried through in in verse 4 because in verse 4 Paul says for I know nothing against myself and uh, there there is various um, renditions of that particular phrase uh, but one of the ones sometimes I'll even go to the NIV I look through all the different translations and the NIV um, has an interesting take on this particular phrase because he calls it, uh, my conscience is clear. But that, in fact, well done, um, Eric, but that does not make me innocent. My conscience is clear. I know nothing that I could be found guilty of, but it's the Lord who judges me. And in verse 5, he really hammers that home. But in, um, in relationship to uh, the judgment of the Lord in verse 4, uh, we don't need to go there. But in, well, uh, you can if you want to, Eric. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. If you've got that, 2 Corinthians. Did I give you that one? I can't yeah, I did. I did. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to watch people in the church at the moment. There's a few people having health problems and medical problems, and that means that you have to go and get um, tests done. And uh, Daryl's well aware of this. Other people are aware of this. Henny and Dom and all the rest of it, you're all aware of this. And uh, even uh, another um, one of our brothers in Christ has got to go and have a procedure tomorrow. And so um, we feel for him. But uh, in my own case, having had um, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, stage four cancer, the, the one thing that I... Um, hate and I'm always very conscious of and I've got uh, another one next month that uh, every now and again you've got to go and have your bloods done and then you have to have this excru excruciating wait 
um, from between um, when you get uh, the bloods done or any test done, and then you've got to go and wait for the results. And uh, I had to sit in a group of uh, people over at Charlie Gardner's hospital, and I had to wait for my name to be called, and I go into the hematologist's office at he gives me the results of my um, of, of my blood test, and I always sort of have a bit of a chuckle when I'm to myself when I'm waiting out in the waiting room amongst all these other people. That this must be kind of like a, a shadow of what is to come when we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and find out, you know, what we've uh, what we've been up to. Um, uh, but in verse five, we'll go to verse five of one Corinthians. Um, for chapter 4, and it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and this is why Paul doesn't judge himself. This is an aspect of Paul's maturity and also his understanding that regardless of how he thinks of himself, he's going to finally one day find out what Jesus thinks of himself. And in verse 5 we have, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring... Uh, who will both bring light to the light, the hidden things of darkness, and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. And, uh, you know, that's something that we that we are all going to face. And uh, I don't know if many of you ever give it some thought about what it's going to be like being up there in heaven and in the antechamber and then waiting for your name to be called. <laughs> called by Jesus. It's bad enough being called by a, a hematologist or an oncologist or a rheumatologist. Um, it's going to be quite some event when we're, we're up there waiting to be called by Jesus himself. But, you know, this is why Paul is exhorting us to, you know, to live the life that Jesus will find pleasing. And by the way, none of us are going to be perfect. There is no such thing as a perfect uh, human being. There is certainly no such thing as a perfect Christian. But it, uh, this is one of these passages where you, in Scripture, where you go back and you look at yourself and you consider yourself in this particular situation. And in, in relation to verse 5, um, I want you to, to have a look at Jeremiah 17. And I think we're looking at verses 9 and 10. And... Uh, Every human being starts out in this, this uh, situation. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Uh, and who can know it? Who can understand it? But verse 10, here's the kicker. I love verse 10. But I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And when we get to um, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we'll have a look at, uh, at some of the things that, uh, you know, is out there in our future. But please, absolutely no one is perfect. Everyone has got failings in one area or another. The other verse pertaining to verse 5 is Hebrews 4.12. And this is one of my first ever memory verses. I've had this, uh, you know, for 25 years. I, I don't know why I stuck with it. I just, it's just, I love it. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces even to the division of the soul and the spirit 
and of the joints and the marrow, and it's a discerner. In some translations, you'll have the word critic, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And uh, this really becomes revealed to us when we're reading scriptures and we, we get sort of um, emotional about particular passages of scripture because, um, you know, we've either been taught something different by someone else and we're having, we're being confronted with something that's challenged our um, established beliefs. But I always, always go back to this verse. For it's the word of God that you rely on and not what someone else has passed on to you by their interpretation. So always remember that. And in verse 6 and 7 and 8, we have now, we've had, that's the accountability that we have. Um, we have it to Jesus and Jesus alone because all judgment has been given to him in heaven and on the earth. And therefore, we are going to face our day with him. But if you have a, uh, a look at the um, church in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5, and it's mentioned again in Revelation 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb, there is no reference everywhere, anywhere in the scriptures to Christians who are in the church age ever being cut off or left out of um, the, the church. We all get cleaned up and scrubbed up and we all become the bride of Christ. And, uh, you know, that is the thing that keeps me going for such, such a long time. And in verse 6, we now have in 6, 7, 8, the application of what we've learned in this particular passage. And in verse 6, Paul says, Paul has applied the, the teaching of servanthood, the teaching about stewardship to himself and Apollos, and he gives those two as himself and Apollos as examples to the Corinthians. And so he says in verse six, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that is stewardship, servanthood, and accountability. And we should read verse six as applying to us. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. So we should now apply to ourselves the position of servant and steward and be a, and held ourselves accountable to Jesus Christ by, uh, as we will meet him in the future. And he said, for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that is the word of God, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. And you'll find that divisions and arguments and disagreements um, um, happen between people in churches and believers because they have their own take on doctrine. And usually when it leads to um, um, confrontation, it's because either one or both have misunderstood that, uh, that degree of, um, uh, of what is in the written word. In verse 7, we go on, uh, for who makes you differ, different from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, why did you boast as if you had not received it? What Paul is telling us uh, in verse 7 is every single thing that you have been given has been given to you by God. You were not born with native talents. 
relating to Christianity that you have honed through the flesh. You have, if anything that you have, you have honed it through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that has given you uh, uh, knowledge and understanding of the gifts that you have. And uh, as um, Dave Hocking was said the other day, uh, he's had to counsel many, many, many pastors over the last 40 years who have fallen into that trap of thinking that everyone in the church is there to serve them. And that is not the case. It's never been the case for me, and it's never been the case for people that I admire, that we are, in fact, servants to the congregation, not the other way around. And uh, it's one of the things that really riles uh, Dave Hocking when he sees people puffed up by their supposed status within the church, because it's totally something that Jesus is against. And verse 8 He's already saying, you are already full, you are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish that you did reign, that we might also reign with you. So Paul's putting them again in their positional um, place of being kings and priests because they're in the royal household of God. And he, he, he really hammers this home. And there, there were a couple of... Um, verses in there and according to verse 7 I don't know if you've still got them Eric just Ephesians 1 3 we'll finish up with these two um, Ephesians 1 3 I'll give it to you yeah and blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Everything that we've got, everything that we use, our ability to be part of a worship team, to be the helps, to be the administration, every part that goes into making a healthy church, everyone is on the same level, but everyone often has been given different giftings. And it's been given to us as a blessing from God our Father. And the other one that I've got there is from James chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. And James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth. See what he did? He saved us. We didn't join by our own will. He saved us. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I prefer children in that translation, but anyway, that's fine. The first fruits of his children. And so um, that is, for me, um, the be-all and end-all. And that everything that we have been given of God, we need to um, appreciate and we need to put it into practice. And this is what Paul is having to go at the Corinthians for because they've obviously got giftings and abilities because they are the children of God. And in Ephesians 1.3, we've received every spiritual blessing that we need and, and that we can put into action. But what the Corinthian church and their childishness is spending so much time arguing with each other and, uh, and, and Paul is putting this to bed in this final chapter. And then we get on 
uh, in 5, 6, and 7 to the practical problems that are in that church. But the, the brilliant thing about, Chris, uh, about the Corinthian church is that it's a lesson to all of us and all the churches that we've been in that we learn the lessons from this teaching. And so I'm going to finish there because I just want to give you um, some time to make comments or ask questions. Um, I've got 10 minutes and then I have to leave and get my beloved wife. Boy, I miss her tonight. But uh, um, if you want to make some comments or ask some questions, by all means, if you want to put your hand up and, and uh, um, Eric can unmute you. Any comments, any questions, someone's pressing? No. So um, that's it. Uh, this is still a trial. Um, I'd like to be able to relate more on a one-on-one -on -one basis to you guys, but John and I and Eric are still trying to work out how we can, we, how we can do that. And I've watched um, a lot of the Q&As that, that a lot of the guys have had online, Amir, Tom Hughes, Barry Stagner, and all the rest of it. It's, um, it's sometimes difficult when you've got a large group to, to um, um, be able to uh, focus on one person asking questions. Um, and, uh, but I'm still... I'm still trying to refine this process and I like it better tonight because I can concentrate on you guys. Um, and before you go, before I take, I'll get my lovely wife. Um, do you find this better than um, last time? Because last time, you know, you had people in the room and, and they, they'll make comments about various verses and it uh, sometimes can be distracting, but not, uh, it's not bad, it's just distracting. So um, can you even offer suggestions about what we might do uh, for this format? And unmute yourself and tell me. So uh, everyone's smiling, everyone's laughing, but no one wants to hit the little button again. Daryl, it's very unlikely you not to have an opinion about something. <laughs> Press it. Now it won't go off. <laughs> Can you unmute him, um, Eric? Dom, unmute yourself. Say something. Oh, hi. Yeah, I, I think it. it was. I think it was really good tonight, but Daryl's back on. <laughs> oh, now back. Now, I'll pass it on to you, Daryl. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> so that well now you've got everybody speaking I, I think it is well look I think the, the most important thing is is that we're extremely lucky and we're extremely grateful that we're able to sit in communion tonight uh, and you know whether you're sitting in somebody's home or whether you're sitting in front of your TV in the comfort of your own home I think it's a blessing I think there are many people underground that don't enjoy this but whatever, whatever it is, I, I think um, it's quite acceptable. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I'm, I'm still open to uh, suggestions and criticism. I mean, uh, you know, some people, uh, you know, uh, when, you, when you're a pastor, you'll always get people every now and again, we've had, what, about two this year, who bring up 
these reams of reams of information um, about the doctrines that they like. And um, you know, I had that recently where I was given stuff that was there is no rapture, there is no um, Jesus doesn't come back until the end of the thousand years, not at the start of the thousand years. All this sort of thing. And I'm not offended by that, and I'm not even upset about that, because when you hear stuff that's wrong, it makes you go back and check what you know is right, and it reinforces your belief. So I have no problems with people um, um, you know, contending with me, because uh, when you get things that you know are slightly wacko, you just then go back to the Word of God, and it reinforces that you really know that these things are true. And... Um, so I, I don't have any problems with uh, with dealing with uh, beliefs that you know are not strictly in the Bible because sometimes people have been mistaught, and um, it's a privilege to be able to point them back to the scriptures.